I'm Christopher Leiden, and this is Open Source with the astonishing novelist, Paul Harding. Out of the blue, a decade ago, Paul Harding won a huge popular following first, and then the Pulitzer Prize for fiction for his modern main sort of folktale called Tinkers. His new one is deeper, darker, more ambitious philosophically, I think, more poetic, more beautiful in long stretches, more ironical too, starting with the title, This Other Eden takes off from sketchy reality, a historic colony of free, poor people, Europeans, Africans, indigenous Penobscots, fishermen, farmers, all of them on a tiny island off the coast of Maine about a century ago, until they got swept up by the state and banished to confinement, some of them in the Maine School for the Feeble-Minded. In the novel, it is Paul Harding's invented characters and his imagination that compose a tale of family love encompassing the damages of incest and murder and official state cruelty. Does that get us started, Paul? Sounds like as good a place as any to jump <laughs> off. You've got a beautiful encapsulation of it. The great event that starts it is a storm, a flood, in 1815, an incredible hurricane, but it's been a family ritual ever since to remember it, recount it. Read that passage where Esther, the matriarch in 1915 or so, is putting herself into the story. Right. It's it's a local flood narrative, and it's a tall tale that, that she takes great delight in telling and almost becomes or inhabits the persona of one of her ancestors. So, And she finishes this telling of the story that the book begins with. Esther finished the story of the flood. Halfway through the telling, she always found herself saying, I held the baby. I couldn't hold my breath, which scared and thrilled everyone listening, nearly conjuring as it did their common first mother. And so there the last of the honeys were, fourth, fifth, and sixth generations distillate of Angolan fathers and Scottish grandpas, Irish mothers and Congolese grannies, Cape Verdean uncles and Penobscot aunts, cousins from Dingle, Glasgow, Montserrat, the wind thumping, the snow swirling, their stomachs growling, their toes and fingers burn black to icicles, crowding the cooling wood stove, the girls asleep, Ethan paused at his drawing, imagining that old local calamity. Eha, too, quieted, calmed, thoughtful, thrilled and hallowed by the story they all knew as well as the one from the Bible. Better, even. Noah had his ark. The honeys had Apple Island. You know, I've read this three or four times now, Paul, and the book is different every time. My first impression was it's a fable out of the Bible written to a sort of jazz rhythm track, and I can hear that even as you read, which is great, but an alternative history of mankind since the flood, the real one, the varieties of Noah's children, what happened. But that's just the beginning. Then the characters. This Esther woman, how do we talk about Esther? She's been raped and impregnated by her father, wants to kill her child, but becomes an incredibly loving matriarch, all in the same lifetime. Third reading is all the doctrine that you're laying out here about one species or maybe an atomized 
individualistic species too. How did you do this, Paul? What are you up to here? <laughs> it's a good question. One of the things I'm finding is, you know, I hadn't looked at the book for a while after I finished copy editing it and it went off to be printed and all this sort of stuff. And now that I'm coming back and starting to talk about it with people and do readings from it, I find that there are parts of it that I forgot are in there as well. Oh. And that, part of the spirit of that is wanting to have that depth and that complexity and deliberately writing a book that not only bears up to, but actually is sort of composed in order to invite repeated readings. Keep going on the point of the art here. First summary of this book is always that, what a shame that the state of Maine cleared the island entirely in 1910 or whatever it was. But there's so much more. What were they doing there in the first place? Why them? How did they get there? How did they survive? How did they live with a rule that seemed to not encourage incest, but certainly encompassed it. What is going on here in this miniature telling of a, the long human story? I was reading histories of organized labor in the United States after the Civil War. It occurred to me that there must be all black and or racially integrated communities. There must have been after the Civil War. And simple Google search yielded that they were all over the place. And Malaga Island, the story of Malaga Island in the book, it's Apple Island, came up pretty quickly and it ticked a bunch of boxes imaginatively and personally for me just in terms of being set in Maine. I've written about Maine. The Maine School for the Feeble-Minded was a model for a, an asylum that one of the characters and Tinkers is almost committed to. And then I found that almost to the week that the real folks were being evicted from Malaga Island, the first International Congress for Eugenics was happening in London. Fascinating. Charles Darwin's son. Charles Darwin's son presiding, yeah. yeah but that eugenics piece becomes one of the central arguments in the book. Yeah. Whether this is a species to be labeled and sorted and discriminated and maybe manipulated, even improved, or as some of your characters seem to intuit, it's a common heritage of souls. They're free, they're fine, and back off. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly one of the things I was pondering was just the impulse scientific, you know, eugenics is certainly pseudoscientific, but the imprimatur of science that it gains mm -hmm. through the quantification, the measurement of certain things that you could make very, very powerful persuasive arguments for being immeasurable things, like the value of a human person. So converting the human person or human soul, however you would put it, that is a qualitative value and does not submit or translate well into quantitative evaluation, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. At the same time, you can read this as a condensed telling of the Bible narrative since the flood as an endless flight from Egypt, as mm -hmm. some of these people imagine it. What does the biblical framework do for you, and how did you get there? It was one of the first things I thought of. Islands and communities on islands have a certain kind of almost legendary or mythical or folkloric quality to them. There's a sense of isolation. There's a sense of maybe being slightly suspended or slightly removed from the currents of history and time. Or I wanted to start testing what the parallels might be to um, say Noah and his ark. So there's a sense that there's something here about displacement 
and about just the human predicament that's as old as humans and as old as humans telling stories. Hmm. And at the same time, I thought of the island and Shakespeare's Tempest and what's going on there. And I thought, because I always do, it's Mm. never far away. I thought of the Pequod and I thought of that United Nations of sailors on the Pequod. Anybody reading this book thinks Melville. Oh, it's definitely, it's Moby Dick. And I really was fascinated with the, the longer I've taught the Old Testament and taught Shakespeare, the more I realized there isn't a page of Moby Dick that does not have the Old Testament and Shakespeare in it. Interesting. Um, And I started thinking about these, almost like these relays of lenses or something where Mm. I went back and I read Faulkner's The Bear, and I said, the bear is like the whale in Moby Dick. (laughs) And the whale in Moby Dick is like the Leviathan in Job. And so there's, here's me, you know, watching Faulkner, (laughs) watching Melville, watching Shakespeare, watching Moses, watch the Babylonians, and then you could turn it around the other way. So I was just thinking about tradition, you know, storytelling, and just that this felt like it it was nested. um, The community is often the word that's used to describe this community and similar communities is that they're marginalized. But I thought, Mm. well, not if you're on the island. If you're on the island, it's, it's, it's the <laughs> main narrative. Nested is just the right word. Yeah. In what way did you or should we think of this as a kind of miniature telling of American history, black and white? Well, that's what I, I started thinking of. Really, one of the main kind of controlling metaphors or analogies I had for this was nesting and telescopic orders mm. of, because I thought, this is a quintessentially Maine story, but then I thought, oh, that's kind of a quintessentially New England story. I thought it's a quintessentially American story. How many states, by the way, have the Maine tradition of writers, Sarah Ornjewitt among them, but Another who have their saint. own literary I don't know. It seems, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I just adore Maine. I just think it's unlike any other any other place. And in the country, the pointed firs is absolutely one of the touchstones for this book. I think that's a neglected American masterpiece. It's this quiet, transcendentalist sort of... I put it on the list. Sort of masterpiece. And it's one of the things I love about that book is it's mostly, it's women. They are herbalists and they sort of run the show. And there's a lot of these sort of toothless old ship captains that they're Mm. sort of taking care of. And it's full of people out on islands and hermits. And it's just very, very beautiful. And when I thought of the character Esther, I thought of her as very much being, she's a matriarch. She's like the matriarchs in the Bible, but she's also like some of the characters that are in the Orange Jewett. We got to talk about these characters and Esther comes first. She's in her 80s, I take it. She's complicated. She's furious. She's angry all her life mm-hmm. at her father. And she killed him. That was one revenge, but he still haunts her. And yet, She's at the center of, to me, the most radiant story in this whole book, Paul. I want to read it. It's where her grandson, Ethan, who can pass for white, is a very gifted, self-taught artist and painter. And somebody has the bright idea, or not so bright idea, to send him off to Massachusetts where he can make his fortune as an artist. She goes along with Ethan's leaving, but she's beside herself. And she says, before you go, you're going to remember that I got the lice out of your hair. She says, we're going to delouse the boy. And it goes a little bit like this. Esther thumbed her grandson's hair from nape to crown, the thick sheafs riffling behind like pages. Her fingers ached, joints swollen, the pain in her knuckles running in lines up her fingers into her palms, up her wrists, deeper into her arms. She saw a knit and held 
the hair up and reaved it through the lock. Kerosene fumed from his soaked head. Ethan sat quiet and submissive, though she pushed and yanked and grabbed and plucked. Lovely child. She leaned closer, squinted, and drew another bug. She murmured to him, Make pictures beautiful as you can. Yes, Graham, I will. Pictures of what you really see. I will, Grammy. His head bowed, listening, heeding, mindful. She thought, he doesn't even think of it, of me, him, of us. He loves me. I love him, despite everything, despite all you or I or any of us ever will be. She pressed the sides of his head with her thin, aching hands as if to settle him, although he was still. She wanted to kiss him on the head, but couldn't because of the kerosene. So instead, she whispered, I'm going to miss you very much. There's great tenderness in this community and yeah. in your book, Paul. Yeah, It's amazing to hear it in somebody else's voice. I've heard it in my <laughs> voice for so long. It sounds great when you read it, but I wish you'd do the audio book. Um, this goes back to something you said at the beginning about the premises we begin with, that there is this terrible thing that the state of Maine did. And one of the things I sort of felt like I realized fairly early in writing the book was that the story, one of the likely ways it would fall apart if it were to fall apart would be if I made the book too much about the outrage we, the readers, would feel about the injustice. The book is not about our righteousness, our mm -hmm. righteous in indignation. And over the years of thinking about it, it became more and more apparent that that to which we devote the most and the best of our attention is that which is the most valuable. It's what the book is about. And so mm. I realized more and more that it would just have to be the, the heart and soul of the book is just being with these people, these families in their mm -hmm. lives and just sort of living with them. And then these other voices and these other points of view come from outside and kind of impose themselves in the narrative. Mm. Um, but I wanted to give the best writing that I could muster to them. Mm. And so, yeah, I just tried to find these moments of great tenderness. And for Esther, she's, she's so fierce. And she, I thought of her as very Shakespearean, great, mm. great counselors in all of Shakespeare's plays. I would say patience. Mm. It's in the Latin sense of suffering, not suffering needlessly, but suffering naturally, having patience in the fullness of the span of your time. We've got to talk about Zachary Hand to God Proverbs. <laughs> And he lives in a house that he has carved out of the trunk of a tree. He lives standing up and carves biblical narratives on the inside of the thing. He's a man of parts. He's also an incredible craftsman. I was going to say, there's tenderness in this place. There's also great craft and skill. Mm -hmm. And nobody likes that sort of thing more than you do. Here's a snatch of Zachary with his friend Eha, And together they have built the house that one of the big families lives in. Why don't you read that, Paul? Eha studies the home he built. It is set facing north. It has a door and a window on the north side and one window on the east side facing the mainland. Both windows have 12 panes of glass in them. They are the only split sash windows on the island. The windows stick slightly because the frames have relaxed out of square, but they still work. The door is made of pine and held from inside by a latch. Eha hung it perfectly, and unlike the windows, its frame is still square. If left open, it will gently swing shut on its own. 
Mm. The sides of the house and the roof are sheathed in cedar shingles Iha made. Every year he splits a pile of new shingles and changes them for those that need replacing. They are true and snug. A slender brick chimney rises from the center of the roof. Iha had to rebuild it once after lightning toppled it. The house has one room. Iha is a fine carpenter like most men on the island are or once were. Let me just say, people who know your tinkers, Paul, are going to be reminded of the clockmakers here, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that craftsmanship. Yeah. But can I say, Zachary is a mystery deeper than that in a way. He has this speech. Late in the game, he kind of explodes with this speech mm-hmm. about queerness. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of 2023, maybe, Absolutely. in the story, yeah. but it's powerful. This is his speech after he's been handed his eviction notice from the island, and he's burned it with a certain contempt. And he says, queer squatters of Apple Island, queer of spades. Read that, where he kind of um, lets his mind go. Sure, yeah. And this, I should just say that in the book, the, the word queer is prompted by the headlines in the local newspapers. That was one of the sort of historical prompts that I actually used. Really? They were called the queer South Sea Islanders of Malaga wow. Island. And I thought queer in 2023 could, you know, superimpose over that and get this sort of... So this is him sort of responding in contempt to those kinds of headlines he's seen. Queer squatters of Apple Island, queer of spades, he thought. His friend, the old widower he'd known since the war, had told him about the article in the paper and the postcards in the general store. That's right, I am queer. From queer folk, queer stock, the very queerest... Here we are, stuck on an island, a hollow, a swamp, the desert, no sooner settled than banished again. You bet I'm queer. I'm no landlord nor lawyer, no duke nor lord of the looms. I'm no cap-doffer, no knee-bender, no flattering stooge. I draw no writs, I pass no judgments, I set no seals, I tip no scales. No, not me. I'm queer. I'm queer for myself, for myselfhood. Queer for this queer self I find myself to be. Queer with strange appetites and a heart that throbs most queerly. I'm queer for other queers. Queer for their shapes and colors and sizes. Queer for their tastes. I'm queer for the ruthless sea. I'm queer for all the little queer creatures in the tide pools. I'm queer for the light when it breaks the horizon and queer for it when it sinks behind the trees. This to break the spell of a sort of one world, one family, one extended humanity. Mm-hmm. No, there are a lot of individuals out here. Yeah, and I, you know, like thinking about these people being called marginalized, on who's marginal to whom, and queer, queer to whom, queer according to what. As a writer, I, I just love to be in conversation with my favorite writers, and that is no secret. It's meant to be an absolute kind of ode to Whitman. Interesting. It's meant to be kind of an ecstatic kind of lyric in his spirit. I was wondering, where's Whitman in this narrative? And, yeah, he's, and there he is. Yeah, absolutely. Paul, the whole business of intermarriages on this island over a century is so fascinating and deep. I want to know the feeling behind this passage about two sisters. They call them McDermott sisters, Violet and Iris, and they're fascinating. You write, Violet had milky skin and tightly curled burnished copper red hair that flared red beneath the sun and fuller moons and had her parents' broad nose. 
across which dried, dark freckles were speckled. Her mouth was full, like her parents as well, her lips pale. Her eyes were the color of greening copper. Iris had her parents' acorn-dark skin, but the narrow nose and thin lips of her Irish ancestors persisted in her face, as did their hair, which she inherited straight and black. She had one brown eye the color of loam, and the other eye winter morning sky blue, it being the watchful eye of their great-aunt Sarah Proverbs herself that came back in an island daughter every now and then to see for herself that her kin were making do and behaving Christianly, according to Ginny, who told the twins that Iris was the third girl on the island since the honeys had settled it to have one brown and one blue eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can also be taken as creepy, too. Let's be real. But sort of the minute I knew that I wanted to write about it, I stopped doing any research. I wanted to sort of diverge from Malaga Island and go towards the imagined Apple Island as quickly as possible. One of the persistent and bigoted and, and you know vicious rumors that went around had to do with incest on the island. Again, I don't know about the factual or historical life of that rumor or if it has any foundation in fact. And so I wanted to put that in the book and sort of, again, just let it elaborate and, and again be interrogative about it to see where it took me. And it ended up the most explicit instance in the book is Esther and her son, Eha. Her son and brother. Yeah, her son and brother. Yeah, yeah. And then there's a family called the Larks who are explicitly brother and sister. They are the people that I think of most as being sort of like... um the magical creatures that are on the island in the Tempest. So I thought of there as being these different almost dimensions, different types of realism, relative realism on the island that, that I could move the reader kind of among and through. Each one would eventually illuminate a different aspect of the story as a whole, but of the others as well. You get all these interesting kind of vectors. Paul, did you ever worry that you can't write about this stuff in an uptight culture, very worried about any way of treating race, particularly if you're not black or mixed origins or, you know, who are you to write this? You seem to have escaped that burden entirely. So the way I just dealt with it was just these things happen. This does happen in the world there are racially integrated communities, there are racially integrated families, and I just thought, how, how can you not write about that if it's the real world? And I had people say, well, you know, you should make everybody white. And I just thought, if that's not erasure, I don't know what is, <laughs> you know? I think that's one of the hallmarks of any given project being worth trying is you think there's a million reasons why you can't pull it off. And I was fortunate, I have no contact with social media. <laughs> <laughs> no contact with Twitter or Facebook. Or so I was vaguely aware of these, you know, these tempests. These People sort of, do get canceled for books like this. Yeah, yeah. And, but, and luckily, I didn't know enough to be terrified into paralysis. If it's going to go kablooey, I'd rather have erred on the side of trying to make some sort of something that's like a gesture of fellowship or a gesture of dialogue or a gesture of connection rather than segregation, rather than separation, rather than censorship, you know, um, and just see what happens when it goes into the world. You're a brave man. And that wonderful review in the New York Times seemed to hand you that victory. Denez Smith's review was one of the most intense experiences I've had in my life because they posed exactly the questions that needed to be posed. 
it's just very utterly humbling that what they did was come up with these real worries about what was about to go down as they read the book. And then what they did, which, I mean, it practically brings tears to my eyes every time I think of it, but they kept reading the book and they read the book on its own terms and the book worked for them on its own terms. When you're a writer, you're writing this thing for eight or 10 years, just thinking, this is what I hope is in the book. This is what I hope is in the book. This is what I hope a reader will find in the book. And Denez found what, what I was hoping for to be in the book. And it was just astonishingly generous and... Um, liberating. Liberating and just generous of them, you know, just to really give the thing the benefit of the doubt. I don't know how they put it in the review, but something along the lines of the choice that I made and that I really intuited was the right one, which is you just stay with the people. You just stay with these people. They are who the story is about. These families on this island being, you know, friends, being lovers, being antagonists, but just being, you know, human beings. What's the emotion you're looking for among readers in a story about incest? So one of the first things, for example, when I was writing about the brother and sister who have a family together, it's just their brother and sister, and here are their children, and you just describe them, and you watch the other islanders, them interacting, and they're just, they're just a community together. It's almost that you know, watch me making love the subject when incest could have been the subject, as it were. You know, and not making it easy or digestible or picturesque or quaint, you know, but trying to be just honest and truthful about it and descriptive, you know, just mm. describing things as they actually are. There's another one of these speeches that I want you to read and sort of unfold. And it's Esther at the end, sort of looking back, they're on their way out of the island under state pressure. And she's just reflecting on what the hell was this all about? And she has a vision of a family sort of boiling down to a few condensed, essentialized, a sort of a reduction of the human story. Could you read that on page 207? Sure. Esther had heard a visiting relative once talk about going to a big reunion on her husband's side of the family. There were more than a hundred people, she'd said. Many of them looked exactly alike, but many of them you'd never tell were related. A family so big, you had to have special reunions of them. They'd spread so far and wide. What it must have been like to have a family that large and get back together with them like that. Mm. Their family on the island was always so small and seemingly getting smaller, compacting, members converging into one another. So few of them they'd begun to be more than one relation to one another at a time. Men being their daughters, fathers, and husbands too. Mothers being their sons, sisters. The family condensing, imploding, fewer and fewer people, becoming heavier and heavier, until one last woman would stand, dark and wholly compacted, herself begat, she her own mother, mm. she her own daughter and sister, all in her one impossibly condensed and sorrowful body, leaden and involute, so when she lay down to die, no one would need to bury her, she would just sink into the ground like a millstone plunging through silty water. Where are you going with that? So much of this, it goes back to what we talk about a lot, which is riffing. 
riffing and improvising and reverse engineering something, trying it at half speed, trying it at double speed, <laughs> playing it backwards, you know. And so that I was just thinking about how they these people had been ended up being sort of trapped on the island. It would be I had this idea of what if Noah the family on Noah's Ark couldn't get off the ark. And just the idea that she had been raped by her father, and so she was her son's brother and mother. And just that idea mm. of just just keep extending that metaphor until you just had this one figure that dark and sort of almost like a black hole of infinite density, just you know, sort of contracting back to almost nothingness. You speak of riffing, and I immediately remember conversations we've had in the past about the great Elvin Jones in the John Coltrane Quartet, the drummer, you're a rock drummer yourself, and you spoke of maybe 20 times going to listen close up to Elvin Jones, be there at his elbow when he's making these oh, combinations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was talking about this the other day with a bass player, a very good friend of mine, Ted Silva. We saw Elvin Jones probably like 30 or 40 times. Wow. He used to come to the old Regatta Bar at the Charles Hotel, and he'd come every nine months. He'd play two sets, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and a matinee Sunday, and we'd go see every one of those sets, or as many of them as we could. And we... We ended up getting the seat next to his drums, and he'd come in and he'd, you know, kind of groan and say, "You guys again," kind of, you know, very kind of affectionate. Those sessions, listening to him and watching him play, were like another MFA degree or a PhD degree in art and professionalism because he'd come in and they'd be late or he'd have a head cold or he and mm. his wife Keiko would be arguing or something, you know, the band hadn't been paid, mm. something like that. He was just a working guy, you know, mm. and but no matter what state he showed up in, the second he sat down in that drum set and counted off the first song, he and the entire band went straight for Saturn. It was just art. It's the closest thing I can think of is it feels like just channeling, you know, being receptive, being... Mm. And at least with writing, what I do is I just try to make, I can describe it more you know, concretely with writing. Because with the writing, I go into a scene. If I'm trying to find a scene, if I'm trying to discover what characters are, it's interrogative. So you're using the mm. language and you're moving it around to try to discover things and come up with revelations. And so one of the things to me with improvising is, it has to do with description and it has to do with deliberately making yourself innocent of presumption. I don't know anything. I don't know these people. I don't know, you know. And so it's, you're just, it's very interrogative. And certainly that's what Elvin Jones did as an improviser, which is exploration. I was only ever a good enough drummer to understand how great he was. There's no way I could have. I mean, I just knew, but I could follow time. And he would he'd go off and do these drum solos. And sometimes he'd do duets with the great bass player, Cecil McBee, which were incredible. And I could follow the time signature and the, you know, the original time and the tempo with my hi-hat foot and keep it. And they would just go, again, like it's, it was cosmic. And no matter how far out they went and out of time and out of time signature, every single time they dropped right back down in on the one. And I was able to keep that tempo. And this is something I tell my writing students a lot. I say, you have to get over being self-conscious about wanting to make great art. There's something kind of selfless about it and just the idea that, yeah, like, yeah, I would love to do something as great as an Elvin Jones drum solo or something like that. You know, I'm wondering always, who taught you to write like this? How did this happen? First and foremost, it's just being a reader. You know, reading sort of finally hit this critical mass where I had to start talking back to my favorite books. I wanted to be in 
dialogue with my favorite books. And that's what I think of as kind of like an informal working definition of literary fiction. It's fiction that is largely inspired by and in conversation with other literature. But I throw all art in there. There's millions of paintings in this book and poems. Yeah. And but in practical terms, it was my two great teachers, one with Marilyn Robinson. Just by luck, I took a class at Skidmore College in the summer of 1996 and in walked Marilyn Robinson. And mm. I've said this many times, but within 10 or 15 minutes of her just starting to talk about art and writing, I, that's the life of the mind I want for myself. And so mm. I've never looked back. She and, and then um, the absolutely wonderful Elizabeth McCracken were the two main people that I studied with. You studied with Elizabeth? Yeah. That's interesting because she has a wonderful blurb in your book, but I would have thought she could have studied with you. She says there's no writer alive, anything at all like Paul Harding. She's incredible. I mean, her writing is, feels like it's larger than life. It feels like it's more amazing. And she always says, well, if, if you knew the family I grew up in, that's like not even half as mm. large as life as my family was. But that idea of, of just kind of trying to put everything you can into language. But also along the lines that we've been talking about, too, is all these layers and thinking about the philosophy and everything. You want that to be there, but you want to write a book that people can read. That's the real ideal, which is to make a book where all those layers are there and they're there for anybody to find them whenever they want, whenever they come to it. But anybody listening who doesn't know one thing about any of these other books, I wouldn't want them to be excluded for a single word from the book. You want the book to be totally lucid, to totally mean what it says and say what it means. I think I'm stuck because of your Elvin Jones fascination with you riffing yeah. and listening to the rhythm. And reading you, I can hear you at the drums. I can hear Elvin, too. It was the first impression opening the book. Benjamin Honey, ex-slave, carpenter, first settler there with his Irish wife. So Benjamin rambled around and found farms where he could help raise a barn or split shingles or clear an acre for crops and came home with seeds that quickened and struck roots and elaborated themselves into the shapes of his remembered paradise. He's remembering the smells of apples associating mm -hmm. it with his mother. Yeah. Roxbury russets, Rhode Island greenings, woodpeckers, and Newtown pippins Benjamin and he kept an orchard of 32 apple trees that began to bear fruit in the late summer of 1814, a decade after he'd planted them. Pippins were perfect for pies, woodpeckers for cider. Children bit sour greenings on dares and laughed at one another when their eyes watered and mouths puckered. Russets were best straight from the tree. That's yeah. Paul over there in the corner riffing. I guess I've been habituated to playing the drums for so long. I think, I just still think in terms of rhythm and in terms of tempo and cadence and dynamics and all that sort of stuff. What I hope too is that that's part of the beauty of the writing and, and it's not ornamental, it's not pretty. It's meant to be, that's kind of supposed to be part of the soul of it because it, it's not generic. It's right there, right then. That's what's coming over the wire and that it's part of the pleasure it gives to the reader to, yeah. to have the language in their head like that. The soul of it, or the, the solo of it. Paul, you're in a wonderful place, and this is a wonderful book. So happy to make the connection again and to feel you doing your wonderful work. Thank you. Thank you. It's always just an absolute delight to sit and talk together. 